Blog Talk Radio. no matter where you're listening from uh, across the globe. Welcome back to my podcast. And uh, I regret to tell you we are having some sort of technical issues this morning. Um, I know Rianne has been trying to connect to the show for the last 10 minutes. And for some reason, um, we can't get her connected to the switchboard. Um, If she hears this, um, I would ask her to maybe try to call back on a different phone, and uh, we will try to wait for her to do that. Um, And in the meantime, uh, I will just uh, tell you about uh, some things I was going to share with you toward the end of the show, uh, and uh, wait for Rianne to try to call back in uh, with a different with a different telephone. So anyway, um, one of the things I was going to share with you um, uh, later on in the show was uh, an article from Archeo News, um, and that is uh, in Turkey, in the Gedekaya Cave, uh, a stone figure was actually discovered recently. Uh, it was discovered in a 16,500-year-old votive pit. Uh, it's from the Epi- Epipaleolithic period. And uh, what it was is a stylized example of an Anatolian mother goddess. Uh, they showed a picture. It looked a bit vague. Uh, the features weren't distinct. Um, but um, another Anatolian mother goddess found. Okay, I think uh, Rianne is calling back in on a different line here, so let's see if we can get her connected. Okay, hey, Rianne, is that you? It is certainly me trying to get in. Okay, I'm really sorry. I don't know what it was with that other phone number, but the um, this, the studio... Um, I don't know, whatever the technicality was. It didn't recognize that phone number. So thank you for calling back on a different line. I really appreciate it. Well, no problem. And I'm delighted that we that you suggested that because I'm now calling you on my cell rather than my landline. Okay, thank you. And I'm sorry for any inconvenience that might uh, that, that caused you. Thank you for hanging in there with us. Um, so uh, I just want to say to uh, uh, friends and fans of yours out there, uh, it's my honor and guilty pleasure to uh, be chatting with uh, the woman who changed the trajectory of my life. 
you know, I probably have told you before when I read your book, uh, Chalice and the Blade, back in the 90s, uh, it was uh, transformational uh, to me. And um, I'm looking forward to chatting with you today about your new book, uh, Nurturing Our Humanity. Um, but before we start, Rianne, uh, I want to read your bio for maybe new listeners um, so that they know about uh, your incredible accomplishments. And uh, then maybe we can jump into the interview questions, if that's okay with you. That's just fine. Uh, okay, it's a thank pleasure you so much. To be with you. So, um, to my new listeners and to Rianne's uh, no doubt new fans, uh, she is the recipient of many honors, uh, such as the Distinguished Peace Leadership Award, uh, which had earlier been given to the Dalai Lama. She's internationally known for her groundbreaking contribution as a systems scientist, futurist, and cultural historian. Uh, she's author of many books. I've mentioned uh, The Chalice and the Blade, now in its 57th year. U.S. printing um, and 27 foreign editions. Uh, she's written The Real Wealth of Nations, which was hailed by Nobel Peace Laureate Desmond Tutu uh, as, I'll quote him, uh, a template for the better world we have been so urgently seeking, unquote. And now uh, her newest, uh, Nurturing Our Humanity, uh, from Oxford University Press, which she co-authored with uh, Douglas P. Fry. Um, so, um, Rianne, uh, quite quite a, uh, a body of work over the years, and uh, I want to talk about uh, all of those um, accomplishments and books, but I kind of want to start at the beginning, if it's okay with you. Um, I heard you speak at a conference a few years ago where you told uh, your story about your family's history uh, and how they happened to come to the United States. Do you, uh, would you mind sharing maybe a little bit of that with the audience? Well, of course, but first I want to be sure that uh, you can really hear me well. Yes. Yes, I can hear you Excellent. very well. It sounds fine. Yes, please, please go on when you're ready. Yes, well, uh, as some of you who uh, know my work uh, realize, um, the research, the writing, the activism, and the passion uh, that I have for all of this is actually rooted in my own childhood. Um, when uh, I was born in Vienna and when uh, the Nazis uh, took over during the Anschluss, uh, which means the joining together uh, of Austria and Germany, uh, on crystal night, a gang of Gestapo men came to our house and dragged my father away. Uh, so I witnessed cruelty, violence, insensitivity, but I also witnessed something else that night, uh, my mother standing up to them. Uh, she recognized one of the young men, uh, one of the Nazis, an, an Austrian uh, Nazi who had uh, actually uh, worked as an errand boy for the family business, and she got furious. You know, she how dare you, she said, uh, do this to this man who has been so kind to you. I want him back. And by a miracle, uh, because she could have been killed. Uh, many Jewish people were killed that night. Um, 
she wasn't, and by a miracle, she did obtain his release uh, for some money eventually passed hands. Uh, but uh, it was that experience, and also uh, my parents managed to purchase an entry permit to Havana, to Cuba, which was one of the very few places that uh, let in Jewish refugees from the Nazis at that time. Um, and growing up in the industrial slums of Havana and seeing these tremendous disparities between haves and have-nots and experiencing poverty, uh, all this led me to questions that I think many of us have asked. Uh, does it have to be this way? When we humans have such an enormous capacity for consciousness, for caring, for creativity, why has there been so much insensitivity, cruelty, violence? And these were the questions that many years later, of course, uh, my multidisciplinary, cross-cultural, transhistorical research sought to answer. And I found that, yes, there is an alternative, but to even begin to see it, we have to leave our comfort zones. Uh, we really have to, well, as Einstein said, you can't solve problems with the same consciousness, with the same thinking that created them. Yes. Um, well, in, and uh, when you were researching the chalice and the blade, um, I believe, uh, I, I wonder if you were surprised to learn about a feminine face of God and some of these very old cultures where maybe violence um, was not so paramount as it is in our patriarchal society? Well, uh, yes and no. Um, I, um, it's very strange. I sometimes talk about my life and my research, really, like the pieces of a jigsaw puzzle coming together. Um, because already in Cuba, for some reason, the one class that had an impact on me was on prehistory. I, I was just fascinated. I mean, not that it, was, it, it had any of the evidence uh, that is uh, really coming to the fore today, uh, enormous amounts of evidence from archaeology, from anthropology, uh, from even DNA studies verifying these findings, as you said, that there were earlier cultures uh, that were not so violent, where violence was not idealized, that had more equality, uh, not only more peace, and yes, where there was gender balance and where uh, actually the divine uh, was conceptualized uh, in many forms, uh, but certainly uh, these so-called Venus figurines, you know, starting way back in the old Stone Age, 30,000 years ago, faceless figures with very prominent breasts, prominent vulva, uh, sometimes pregnant. I mean, these were not just dolls or uh, some weird form of pornography, like some of the earlier scholars who saw them through this 
lens, you know, of what I call the domination system, uh, wrote, uh, these were, as you said, uh, feminine depictions of the divine. So when you wrote uh, Chalice and the Blade, I'm just curious, um, did you get any pushback for this alternative history? Because I don't think the mainstream uh, knew a lot about that then. Um, Maybe even a lot of the mainstream doesn't know about that now. Uh, did, Did you encounter pushback with Chalice and the Blade? Oh, definitely. But I also encountered a tremendous, tremendous uh, amount of enthusiasm. And, uh, well, as you said, Karen, people reporting that this book has changed people's lives. And what we're talking about really is a different paradigm. What we're talking is not right versus left, religious versus secular, Eastern versus Western, uh, none of which, you know, there have been violent, uh, repressive, oppressive uh, regimes in every one of these so-called different categories. Um, They fragment our consciousness, uh, if only because they ignore or marginalize nothing less than the majority of humanity, women and children. And when you do that, obviously you don't see the whole picture, and so you cannot connect the dots. And that's what this work does. It connects the dots, and it shows that, well, that yes, there is a connection, and and nurturing our humanity, of course, uh, draws a lot from biological science, including neuroscience, verifying this connection, uh, because what we know today is that from neuroscience, that what children observe or experience in the first years of their lives impacts nothing less than how our brains develop the structure of our brains, and hence how we think, how we feel, how we act, how we vote. Well, and there's also evidence now that, um, you know, there's even such a thing as uh, ancestral trauma. Uh, Scientists have said, uh, you know, children start to experience trauma in the womb. Um, I wonder if you're familiar or have any thoughts about either of those ideas. Well, yes, I don't uh, have I I I don't uh, address that issue, but I do very much address the issue of trauma, because what I call domination systems, rather than partnership systems, are really trauma factories, uh, starting in the family. Uh, I mean, uh, let me be nonlinear here. Uh, regimes uh, such as Putin in Russia which are, you know, strongman rule, rigidly male-dominated, very violent, you know, the brutal uh, invasion of Ukraine, for example. Uh, Putin in 2018, uh, he substantially lowered the penalty for family violence. So if you hurt or kill a child or a woman or, or a man, 
in the family, uh, the penalty is much lower than if you hurt or kill a stranger. So people pushing us back, like Putin, like uh, the Nazis in Germany, uh, like Khomeini's Iran, like the Taliban, on the surface, very different cultures, right? Right, left, religious, secular, Eastern, Western, religious, secular, you know, I mean, they recognize this connection between a rigidly male-dominated, very punitive, authoritarian family and that kind of state or tribe. And yet, progressives, we have been taught uh, to marginalize these issues, haven't we, as just women's issues or, quote, just children's issues, whereas, in fact, the structure uh, of gender roles and relations, the structure of parenting, uh, caregiving, uh, are very, very key principles for social and economic and political organization. Well, and and I think we we still have problems with... um uh, things like domestic violence here in the United States. Uh, I was just reading an article this morning that I shared on my Facebook page about uh, a man who was arrested for killing his wife and his children um, because the wife had recently divorced him. And, um, uh, and, and prior to her trying to divorce him, he had been assaulting their daughter, and she went to the police, and nothing was done. And it seems like the police don't do anything until some atrocity has been committed. It's as if there's no protection uh, in the family unit um, when... Um, the patriarch of the family um, goes berserk. Well, and in cultures that oriented more to the domination side, uh, and in cultures that still today orient more to the domination side, so-called honor killings, right? Uh, they're, they're, you know, they're. I mean, the people are praised for killing a wife or a daughter uh, who, quote, dishonors the, the, the male head of household. I mean, this is absolute nonsense. Uh, it's terrible, terrible stuff. Uh, and it's slowly beginning to change in the United States. But as you said, uh, in some places, it isn't yet. Yeah. Well, um, granted, we, we have a long way to go before we reach this place, we, this new normal that, that we all uh, would, you know, would like it to be. But in Chalice and the Blade, you talked about humanity being at an evolutionary crossroad. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? Um, you know, maybe some hope there. Uh, where do you think we are in that evolution? Well, uh, if we look at the struggle for our future, uh, not in terms of these old categories which really fragment our consciousness, you know, right, left, religious, secular, eastern, western, northern, southern, capitalist, socialist. I mean, a colleague of mine calls these categories weapons of mass distraction. 
because they really, as I said, fragment our consciousness. If we look at it in terms of the struggle between those trying to push us back to the configuration of top-down strongman rule in both the family and the state, a more use of violence to maintain these rankings of be it man over woman, man over man, race over race, uh, you know, all these ugly isms, anti-Semitism, racism, etc. What we see is that the struggle is really between those who get the connections and those of us who want to create a better future, what I call a partnership organization. And yes, in order to build this, as uh, I write in nurturing our humanity, we have to pay actually special attention rather than just marginalizing or ignoring them to four cornerstones, uh, childhood, gender, economics, but going beyond both capitalism and socialism to a caring economics of partnerism and story and language. And so many of us are working on bits and pieces of this, but we've lacked this whole frame, this whole system's inclusive frame. And we have to really pay attention to these cornerstones because it is on pushing those towards the domination side or strengthening the domination elements in them that we have seen regression after regression, whether it's Putin's Uh, in Russia, whether it's uh, Hitler in Nazi Germany, whether it's Khomeini in Iran, whether it's the Taliban. uh, We have to really connect the dots and include include in these dots uh, well, where family, gender, the relations where we first learn what is or is not normal, what is or is not moral. Yeah, because we've been uh, normalizing abuse and exploitation uh, as long as we can remember. And I think we endure abuse uh, simply to survive. Uh, and, And I think we've become numb to it. You know, we don't even see it as abuse and exploitation anymore. It's just the way it is. Um, and I don't know, I find that alarming. Maybe it's not a new concept, but um, uh, I, I find it alarming, and I wonder if you have any thoughts on that. Well, I have a lot of thoughts on that because it is a crucial issue. It's the normalization of domination, the normalization and even idealization of violence, especially male violence, Um, these rigid gender stereotypes, for example, uh, in which real, quote-unquote, masculinity uh, is equated with domination and even with violence, where you get what uh, Michael Kimmel, a scholar in men's studies, calls aggrieved uh, entitlement. If you don't get sex from women, if you don't dominate women, I mean, this is all really part of the regression 
uh, towards domination systems. And we can't really fight it if we just marginalize it as just a gender issue. No, it's, we have a hidden system of gendered values. So it isn't only women uh, who are uh, really uh, relegated uh, to an inferior position. It is anything coded feminine, such as caring, caregiving, and nonviolence, which are considered off, off the books for, quote, real men. Because you know, male socialization in domination systems is not being like a woman, right? Right. So we right. have to look at these things and how they affect our economic reward system. I mean, that's why I've, in the real wealth of nation, introduced, uh, yes, we need a market economy, and yes, we need enlightened government policies, but we need an, an economic system that no longer excludes the three life-sustaining sectors, uh, which both socialism and capitalism do the uh, natural economy, the volunteer community economy, and the household economy. And this is very much of a gendered issue, isn't it? Because in the household, well, I mean, for both Marx and Smith, caring for children, caring for the elderly, caring for the sick, keeping a clean and healthy environment, which, of course, translates also into cleaning a clean and healthy uh, uh, planetary environment. This was supposed to be done for free by a woman in a male-controlled household. So they coded it as reproductive, only reproductive rather than productive, and that's how GDP does. It excludes it. I mean, we've got crazy economics Yes, yes, I, yeah, absolutely. And um, and just to the, if you could speak a little bit toward this uh, um, male-dominated patriarchal idea of controlling women's uh, reproductive life, can you explain to listeners uh, why it's so important that women don't lose the rights to their bodies, to uh, their reproductive um, futures? Well, it's critical because uh, if we don't have uh, the right to determine what happens in our own bodies, I mean, that, that, that is a basic human right. And uh, the fact that, for example, when Stalin came to power, uh, the penalty for abortion became much greater, that's not a coincidence. That's part of the domination regression, the regression to a to strongman rule, to violence as you know punitiveness, you know like the punitive male head of household, right? Uh, and uh, yes, uh, really lots of abuse and violence to maintain rankings of domination. We have to connect the dots and. The partnership and domination systems, and I really urge people to go to centerforpartnership.org and look at some of the graphics because it's a very quick way of seeing the difference 
between these two underlying configurations. And we have to start thinking in these terms because as long as we keep thinking in terms of the old categories, we aren't addressing the fundamentals. Right. And, and I mean, just to elaborate a little bit on what you just said, I mean, if a woman is saddled with children, if a woman is pregnant, uh, it, uh, she loses so many options to her future, whether that be education, whether that be a career, uh, whatever it is. And it makes, it, it potentially makes her dependent and vulnerable. And, um, and, and I think um, someone uh, who isn't practicing partnership, somebody who's accustomed to uh, domination, well, that's kind of where they want you, right? You know, whether we're talking about predator capitalism or we're talking about women losing rights to their uh, reproductive life, um, in a way it's about, you know, um, having control over you and preventing you from your own autonomy, it's about domination, pure and simple. And this feeling of dependency um, is made very real by the structures of domination systems, by the laws, by the, uh, well, look, I mean, until very recently in terms of evolutionary time, uh, we lived in more partnership-oriented societies. Uh, until about 5,000 years ago. All of this is in uh, my books, of course. And then there was this shift. But with this shift uh, came not only changes in values, changes in how we value, what do we really value, uh, changes in economics, changes in, you know, I mean, we have a system of domination economics, you know, whether it's a Chinese emperor or whether it's an Arab sheik or whether it's trickled-down economics. Uh, it's like in feudal times, those on the bottom are dependent, right? And they are really socialized to be happening from the opulent tables of those on top. That's what trickle-down economics is really about. It's part of our socialization for dependency. And for women, uh, I mean, until several, you know, I mean, until very recently, when, uh, the, the, the well-paying careers, uh, most, most careers were closed. Uh, education was not open to women. This is something that needs to be part and parcel of our educational system, not just Women's Month, Women's History Month. I mean, we're happy to have one month. We had nothing. But kids get it. It's not the main event. It needs to be integrated. I, I wrote a book called Tomorrow's Children on a gender-balanced, uh, really uh, environmentally conscious, uh, completely valuing of diversity education and uh, it's very hard to make these changes, but the good news is that in bits and pieces, there are being changes being made. Uh, even in the four cornerstones, like in family, you hear a lot about the shift from authoritarian 
parenting, not to laissez-faire parenting, because children need uh, guidance. They need some measure of knowing, you know, how to survive, really, uh, but to authoritative parenting and, of course, nonviolent parenting. But this said, the amount of violence, and this is in, in Nurturing Our Humanity, uh, and in many articles that I've written, because I'm also an attorney by training from the UCLA School of Law, uh, the amount of violence against children and women it is, is a pandemic, and we've got to unite to stop it. Well, you, you brought up education, and, um, you know, we're hearing so much in the news right now um, about, uh, you know, critical race theory. Um, you know, okay. some corners of, you know, they don't want, to, want us to teach about our history, you know, whether it be our history with um, Native Americans or African Americans. And I know uh, colleges across the country, in many cases, are discontinuing women's studies classes. Can you speak to how this is actually a form of domination as well, withholding the truth of the history of our country and um, where women fit in it, uh, how it relates to what we're talking about today? Oh, absolutely. And it is exactly that. And uh, it really, when they keep talking about parental rights, right? But it's like the notion that parents own their children, including what their children think and what their children feel and what their children know. And that is just domination, isn't it? But in domination yeah. systems, you see caring and coercion is the confluence of them. And, and I have a whole book uh, examining, well, you know, the second book, and I think you're well acquainted with it, Karen, uh, which is called Sacred Pleasure. And the subtitle is Sex, Myth, and the Politics of the Body. And I really highly recommend that book. Well, I recommend all of my books, frankly, because as you said, they're powerful instruments for personal empowerment and with this for cultural change. Yes, uh, yes, and um, I was going to ask you. Well, well first, l let me let me just backtrack one minute. You you start to drop in the idea of partnership versus domination, and at the very end of Chalice and the Blade, I believe, then you go on to write Sacred Pleasure, and then you wrote The Power of Partnership. Could you, and, and then I want to go on and talk a little bit more about The Real Wealth of Nations, and before we leave, your new book, uh, Partner, Partnerism and Nurturing Our Humanity, but could you give us just a tiny brief thumbnail? Uh, how would you describe the, the synopsis of Sacred Pleasure and the power of partnership beyond their subtitles. My goodness. Well, uh, Sacred Pleasure, um, you know, it takes me a long time to write my books. It took me 10 years between uh, almost, uh, let's see, Chalice, uh, seven years before uh, it was, no, six, uh, was it, well, whatever it was, six or seven years between the two books. But I... Uh, it was funny how that book developed because I thought I was going to write a book and I announced it in Chalice. And by the way, Chalice uh, uh, throughout it 
really introduces the partnership and what I then call the dominator model rather than domination okay. model. Um, but um, in, I, I, I was going to write a book called uh, something like um, Breaking Free. Yes, that was the title. And uh, there was one chapter uh, that first it was one folder and there were two folders and it was a whole box. And I finally realized this is a book and it was applying the partnership and domination social scale to both uh, sexuality and spirituality. And the first part of sacred pleasure really traces the transformation of both. And it's fascinating. I mean, you, uh, you know, from, from the goddess Bridget, for example, you go to uh, Saint Bridget. And, and, and that's already a big deal because in other uh, contexts, you, you have a sex change, you know, where a former female deity becomes a male saint. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a really fascinating book, and that's the first part. Um, and it deals with the sacred marriage and how it became the marriage in Catholicism between the church and a male, it became a homosexual marriage, I mean, in a homophobic church. I mean, the whole thing, it's, it's a crazy system, you know, but we're so used to it, it has been so normalized that we just yeah, accept so, so much it. cognitive, so much cognitive disconnect that we just accept as, as normal. <laughs> that, that is correct. But this is a way, uh, well, then the second part, of course, applies uh, to what's happening right now. And that really foreshadows uh, books like The Power of Partnership, for example, which uh, is kind of a self-help book. In fact, it won the Nautilus Award as the best self-help book of that year. But unlike most self-help books, it doesn't just deal uh, with how we relate to ourselves, our intimate relations, at most our work uh, and our community relations. It goes to our national relations, our international relations, our relations with nature, our spiritual relations, because they're very different. And it's, a, it, it's kind of like a workbook. And a lot of people have used this book um, of, uh, in, in, in workshops, in classes. Uh, which I'm very grateful for. And, of course, the real wealth of nations applies this partnership domination scale to economics. And we have inherited, uh, and it's interesting because uh, people are trying to sort of put add-ons to a fundamentally imbalanced system that simply excludes as just reproductive the three life-sustaining sectors, the natural economy, the volunteer community economy and the household economy. And yes, uh, it's less perpetuated by GDP, by our metrics. We are at the Center for Partnership Systems um, developing a social wealth index, which shows the economic value of the work of caring for people starting at birth and caring for our natural life support systems. 
uh, that is not part of the metrics that we're using, and it needs to be. Yes, yes. Well, and I would certainly recommend anyone go to your website and learn about the Partnership Society. Um, I so enjoyed uh, the classes that they give there. Uh, I'm a power partnership presenter and also, um, you know, can talk about uh, caring economics as well. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's almost an oxymoron, isn't it, the idea of caring economics, the way, you know, we've come to think about uh, economics. Well, you know, once you articulate these things, they seem perfectly obvious. But the problem is that they are not articulated. They're not part of a conventional studies of society, which, if you haven't noticed, uh, really focus on what I call the top of the nomination pyramid, uh, politics, economics, uh, education to some extent, religion, but they don't deal with these four cornerstones uh, of childhood, even though we know from neuroscience that we have to really move towards a partnership rather than a domination family. And um, we have some really good resources for that. Uh, first of all, we have the uh, Caring and Connected uh, Parenting Guide, a short document on our website. We also have a wonderful article uh, in our journal, uh, which is at the University of Minnesota, uh, the uh, Interdisciplinary Journal of Partnership Systems, um, which is, as I said, at the uh, University of, of, um, of Minnesota. Um, but uh, we need to really normalize these. And we need yes. the media, we need education, and every one of us can, the first thing is changing our own consciousness. And then the next step is using our spheres of influence to change the consciousness of others. And then the next step is uh, really interventions, uh, supporting some of the work that we're doing at the Center for Partnership Systems, uh, such as the Partnership Technology Toolkit, getting it out there, because technology, AI, uh, my gosh, I mean, that's a whole new world. And if it's guided by an ethos of domination, uh, we've had it. Yeah. Um, well, let's get to the new book. And I mean, I know we've, in a way, c probably covered uh, certain aspects of it, but the new book, um, uh, Partnerism, uh, Nurturing Our Humanity, you talk about partnerism. Is, is that um, different at all from partnership, or is it, is it just a, a new way to say it? Partnerism is actually introduced in the real wealth of nations. Uh, it is an economic system that, unlike both capitalism and socialism, uh, values and rewards the most fundamental human work, caring for people, starting at birth, and caring for our natural life support systems. Uh, nurturing our humanity is quite different from my prior books because it uh, draws so very heavily from biological science. Already in uh, earlier books, I begin to bring in some of it, 
But this book draws very heavily from neuroscience, and it shows, for example, that this whole argument about nature and nurture is another red herring, because we know from neuroscience that the real issue is gene expression. And how that happens is an interactive process, especially during the first five years, between our genes and our our environment. And for humans, of course, that environment is mainly cultural, isn't it? I mean, Mm -hmm. so, but if we're stuck in the old categories of right, left, religious, secular, Eastern, Western, Northern, Southern, we don't see the connections. Right. And and that book is full of studies showing, for example, that the story about human nature that we've been taught is false. You know, like the caveman cartoon with one hand, he's holding a club, a weapon, and with the other Mm -hmm. one, he's dragging a woman by the hair. Well, we think nothing of showing that to children before their brains, much less their critical faculties, are fully formed. And what does it tell us? That uh, violence, you know, the weapon, male dominance is dragging the woman by the hair, inequality, inequity, that's just human nature. That's false. We know from studies that actually the so-called pleasure centers of our brains light up more when we share and care than when we win and dominate. But much more than that, it also debunks the, uh, it takes, it takes actually, uh, the chalice and the blade much further back. Because I had been working on this book for seven years. It takes me a long time to write my book. Um, and then I invited the anthropologist Douglas Fry to be my co-author. And the reason, uh, one of the major reasons is that Doug is one of the world authorities on foraging societies, which is how we humans lived for millennia. And he calls them the original partnership societies. They were more egalitarian, more gender balanced, far less violent. So mm. uh, again, this, this, so this book really, uh, by drawing so much from biological science, from neuroscience, grounds uh, these findings and this new uh, system of classification of societies in uh, neuroscience, in biological science, and it ends with a call to action, as all my books do, of course, um, uh, focusing on the four cornerstones of childhood, of gender, uh, of economics, but you know, moving to a caring economics of partnerism, and of course, story and language. So, Rian, uh, I've tried to do a you know a brief overview of you know your incredible legacy of work out there, uh, but just from a personal standpoint, do you have a book that you're most proud of, or you think has made the most impact in the world? Well, um, the Chalice and the Blade has probably made the most impact in the world. It was just uh, uh, translated very recently, in again into Spanish by a new publishing house. A very good translation, actually. And I was interviewed by all the major media in Spain, El País, and so on. Uh, but 
actually the it's the body of work as you say and i think that uh, well it depends on what your particular passion is if it's economics then yes the real wealth of nations has certainly had an impact uh, if you are into uh, this you know disproving so many of the stories that are false stories uh, all of these books especially the last one nurturing our humanity the subtitle is how domination and partnership shape our brains lives and future they're all important if like you uh you uh, do classes you do workshops then the power of partnership is an excellent research if you're an educator i will be teaching a course uh, through the montessori foundation and you can uh, ask uh, it will be on our website of course and in our social media facebook instagram etc um, on uh, tomorrow's children on partnership education uh, but they're all attempts uh, and it depends on what your sphere of interest your passion and yes uh, your networks are where you can make the most difference yes well, Rian, I want to thank you for making time for being on the show today. And, um, you know, I want to leave you, um, you know, I want to ask you if you can leave us with a final word or maybe some hope uh, that, um, um, you know, you think we are on the road to manifesting that new normal. Well, look, I mean, uh, cultures are human creations. Uh, every one of us can play a role in shifting our cultures from domination to partnership and it's beginning to happen in bits and pieces but we need the frame yeah and it may sometimes be uh you know one step forward and two steps back or maybe it feels that way but uh, we have to be tenacious we have to be tenacious and we have to focus on these four cornerstones because it is on them that these domination regimes keep rebuilding themselves, whether it's Putin in Russia, Bolsonaro in Brazil, uh, Trump in the United States, uh, the Taliban, uh, Khomeini's Iran, it doesn't matter. They all have the same configuration of strongman, authoritarian rule, uh, ranking of male over female and quote masculine over quote feminine, and lots of abuse and violence. That is Absolutely. the configuration. Well, and we Leanne, have to thank you so much. Yes, yes, well, absolutely. Thank you. And, uh, and well, uh, I want to thank you. Well, and thank you for the uh, your dedication to trying to help the world be a better place. Um, uh, it, it, it's an incredible body of work. And for listeners, uh, I want to give the websites. It's rianneisler.com or I-A-N-E-E-I-S-L-E-R.com and also the Center for Partnership.org. Um, thank you so much, Rianne, for the time you spent with us today. Well, thank you, Karen, and keep up your important work. Thank you. Thank you very much. 
Well, listeners, um, I'm going to let you hear a word from Joe Carson right now, and then I'm going to be back to share some other information with you, and I hope, uh, hope you'll stay with me. This is from Jonathan Nightshade, a Gardnerian high priest of the Whitecroft line, a traditional craft practitioner and researcher, writing about Joe Carson's book, Celebrate Wildness, Magic, Mirth, and Love on the Feriferia Path. I love this book, how special this work is and how appreciated. As someone who was young in the 1970s and through the years only found snippets of information on Feriferia, one of the first modern pagan paths, this book comes as an artistic revelation of the core practices of the way of the goddess and gods reborn for the next age of the Divine Maiden. She has clearly introduced the historical background philosophy and ritual practices of the joyous wilderness mysteries of the fairy faith, illuminated by the marvelous pagan art of Feriferia's founder, Fred Adams. I was very pleased that the high-quality production of this oversized volume makes it a collectible work of art, as well as a testament to the visionary philosophy of Fred Adams. I feel blessed that I received a copy. I will treasure it and look forward to the next book for more of the deep philosophy and ritual practice of Feriferia. Celebrate Wildness is a dense art book quality hardcover book. You can get it for just $45 from the Feriferia website at feriferia.org. That's F-E-R-A-F-E-R-I-A dot org. And I also want to remind listeners about uh, the Divine Feminine app. Uh, I wonder if you've heard about it. Well, uh, it turns out women have been finding the Divine Feminine app uh, each and every day since 2016, and it's a resource for finding local sacred circles, events, and resources. The Divine Feminine app has a new feature where newly added and local events are sent out every Tuesday uh, right to your email. Uh, You can go to divinefeminineapp.com and register quickly, easily, and at no cost to see circles in your area and to be put on this email list. Uh, And it's not just uh, local events, but also uh, soul-filled, sacred, feminine, virtual, and online events are also listed there at the Divine Feminine app, uh, as well as retreats, profiles, podcasts like ours here, Voices of the Sacred Feminine, and much more. So... um, At the beginning of the show, uh, I talked to you about uh, one of the headlines that I wanted to share with you today. Um, I like to share these headlines and or stories with you uh, because, you know, they run parallel to the topics that we talk about, Um, you know, whether it be prehistory or uh, domination, partnership, you know, trauma, abuse, exploitation, patriarchy, whatever it is, uh, it's a big umbrella. And uh, as I mentioned, um, Archeo News had that great article about the uh, Anatolian mother goddess, and uh, you could find it on my Facebook page, or I'm sure you could, uh, you could Google it. But the other headline I wanted to share with you today um, came from uh, CNN. It uh, was about uh, Oak Flat in Arizona. Uh, it's a Native American sacred site, uh, sacred to the San Carlos tribe, uh, which is an Apache um, 
you know, Native American group, and uh, they use Oak Flat as part of their um, religious practices. And uh, there's a case that's going to be heard soon by the Ninth Circuit uh, court judges, uh, whether um, under religious freedom, uh, whether, uh, you know, this tribe is going to be able to keep Oak Flat uh, safe or whether mining companies are going to be able to go into that area and uh, cause the destruction that uh, uh, will certainly come if they allow mining in that area. So we'll be, uh, we'll be following that story, and um, I will let you know uh, how that all turns out. And uh, I also wanted to share with you that uh, the last Wednesday of the month, uh, we are back to our regular time and date. And um, on the 25th, I will have with me artist uh, Judith Shaw, and we're going to be discussing storytelling uh, as a remedy for healing. I think that's a quite interesting alternative healing modality I think you'll want to hear about. So uh, that about does it for me today. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed the show and this rare treat uh, to hear from Rianne on such an extended basis. Um, please tell your friends uh, about the show, about uh, the interview. Uh, tell them Karen Tate is back. Um, and, um, you know, I, like I said, you know, you probably heard about my descent, but uh, I feel like now I'm on the rise, uh, you know, doing my work where I feel spirituality, personal transformation, and social justice meet. And I just want to thank um, you uh, friends, fans, and colleagues uh, who have helped me along this journey and helped me get back to a place of normalcy. Uh, and I would invite you, please, uh, go to my Facebook page. Uh, I am consolidating all my pages very shortly, and soon uh, one of the only public pages I'll have is the one called Voices of the Sacred Feminine Radio. Uh, if you follow me there and like that page, uh, you will see what I'm up to, not just the radio show. And please uh, check out uh, my new Tools for Transformation website at karentate.net. So um, I will leave you uh, with this homage to Sekhmet. Until next week, uh, have a great week, and um, uh, may Goddess embrace you in her golden wings.
With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.